Hello, and welcome to Laidback Lush, a wine, beer, and spirits educational podcast. I'm Michael, your ever-enthusiastic co-host, and with me is Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 Certified in Wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And today, we will be talking about a region of wine that is fairly understated and also very much so young. Mm, A place near and dear to our heart and ever-present under our feet. And all around us, even. all around us. I can feel it all around us. It binds us. (laughs) It encapsulates us. (laughs) It landlocks us, even. It does. Although it is not a landlocked state. Correct. So, uh, the state, the name is Virginia. Actually, I I do love Virginia quite a bit. Um, Virginia is a beautiful place if you've never been. We have kind of uh, the extremes of both sides of weather, but Mm. we have a fairly beautiful state. Lots of different parks, lots of different craft breweries, and of course, lots of different wineries. And uh, increasingly distilleries as well. We also have cideries, which Mm -hmm. is a tradition that goes back way way into the history of virginia yeah um if you've never gone apple picking in the mountains i highly recommend it it is a lovely experience what's the really famous orchard is it carter mountain carter mountain yes yeah that one is where you can go and uh i don't do they let you climb the trees do you know if they i highly doubt that yeah i don't think (laughs) unless you're like five maybe but that'd be a risk okay well if i happen to go to carter mountain just know workers of carter mountain i won't climb the trees (laughs) wink (laughs) my fingers aren't crossed behind my back no sir listen this is a podcast it's not video i'm supposed to be able to wink in Mm. silence (laughs) and not have you call me out like this now they'll know if you work at Carter Mountain, just get one of those men in black flashers and just wipe your own memory real quick yeah, for us, no, please. Yeah, please, if you have those on hand. Also, give me one. I have things I want to forget. <laughs> um. <laughs> Same. Oh, dear Lord. Okay, so we're not off the rails. Uh, in any case, though, we wanted to talk today about Virginia as a wine region. Now, like we said, there are a bunch of different types of craft stuff that we'll probably get into as we get into later episodes of this podcast. But for today, we are going to be talking about the wine experience of Virginia. Just a little overview. Now, Gabe has had tons and tons of experience with Virginia wineries. I have. Um, Ever since I've known you, actually, you've been telling me about (laughs) different wineries that you've gone to. Yeah. uh, experiences that you've had should i give my uh my superhero origin story for how i came to champion virginia wine absolutely (laughs) Um, so in 2017 i want to say it was my father and i discovered that we have a ton of wineries in virginia it's over 300 now but i believe at the time it was around 280 still basically we decided to go on a wine tour We went from Northern Neck area down through Charlottesville and kind of have made it a tradition to do one or two a year since, which has been really cool. I couldn't even tell you how many wineries I've been to at this point, (laughs) honestly, um, as much as I might want to. Uh, But yeah, so I have quite a bit of experience with the wines of Virginia. And since I have been doing this for several years now, I've also gotten to witness the changes in the wine industry itself, or at least the uh, trends in styles of wine and grapes that have fluctuated throughout the years. 
Gabe is also the first person to ever bring me a Virginia State wine. You brought me a Veritas, I believe it was a 2012 Petit Verdot that was just Was it that old? Was it twenty? Was it 2014, maybe? I want to say it was 2015, but I could be wrong. It could have very well been 2014. Normally, they put their more age-worthy reds out a couple of years after the vintage mm-hmm. date. So, mm-hmm. yeah, probably 2014, 2015. It, it could have been 2012. I, I could it be It could have very well been a 2014. I, um, I have a different phone now, so the picture is lost forever. Mm-hmm. Well, the other one that we had from Veritas to celebrate our anniversary last year not our anniversary, with the podcast, the podcast anniversary. anniversary. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that one had been laying down for a couple of years in my uh, my little closet over here. That was also delicious. That was delicious. Oh my goodness. Anyway, so that's how I got into Virginia wine, and actually, that's what got me into wine in the first place, is because I started visiting all these vineyards and just got curious as to how all this came to be, because you know, at that time, tasting room attendants knew a lot more than I did. And I would just, you know, how does the vineyard work? What grape is this? Why does it taste this way? So Back when I actually knew more about wine than Gabe did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was uh, the good old days. So we are going to be talking today about just the general climate, some of the different regions that are associated. We do actually have eight distinct AVAs with kind of a, a weird one at the end there. But uh, about 4,000 acres of grapes are planted in Virginia. So we want to be talking about kind of that, some of the standouts that we've really enjoyed, as well as publications that you can find Virginia wines inside of. And then we wanted to just briefly talk about where we think wine is going and kind of what we believe that Virginia can offer. And we even have a Virginia wine with us that we'll we be do. giving a brief tasting on. So stay tuned if you want to hear it in real time. In real time. That's right. Because this is a live broadcast. Exactly. <laughs> Don't think about pre-recording. That's silly. So You're listening to this as we're saying it. <laughs> you're, it's like you're just here with us. Exactly. Having a nice glass by the fire. Definitely not inside of a small room with really... Poor equipment. That That's... took us 30 minutes to get together, as always. <laughs> oh, oh, dear Lord. So, Lord. so one, of the, uh, one of the main things, if you've ever been to Virginia, that we do complain about is the humidity. I mean, I feel like we just complain about the weather no matter what's going on, but the humidity is definitely a staple in complaints. Yeah. And that's probably one of the main things that separates Virginia in general. So let's let's get to talking about it. So as far as our climate is concerned. Yes. So we have a humid subtropical climate, technically speaking. That means we're going to have a maritime climate and more wine-based terminology for a lot of the state. Now, something, if you don't know the topography of Virginia very well, to make a very big note of in your head going forward in this episode is we have everything from beach to mountains, Mm -hmm. all within our little state. So obviously the coastal regions are going to be much more affected by humidity, wetness, particularly at this time of year, hurricanes and tropical storms, which can disrupt harvest, but we'll get into that here in a second. Um, And then as you go up into the mountains... You typically will start to see a bit more of a continental climate influence, which means more stable and longer growing seasons, maybe less rain, kind of depends on where you're at in the mountains, but they can act as a rain shield. So 
that's kind of like a big overview of our climate overall. But like Michael said, in general, very humid. That puts a lot of disease pressure on Virginia vineyards, particularly for Vitis vinifera vines. We grow mostly vinifera vines. There are some people that are doing, or some producers, I should say, that are doing hybrids and some native grapes. But in general, Vitis vinifera is going to be the grape of choice for Virginia, and that is very susceptible to rot. So organic farming for a lot of people is not feasible. Uh, There is one exception to that. We do have a certified organic winery, Loving Cup. If you don't follow us on Instagram, please do, because I actually did a post about them because I just went there uh, last weekend, or no, two weekends ago, and uh, had a good time, but we'll get to that towards the end of the episode. Anyway, we do have also a lot of rainfall in Virginia. Well, it used to vary. Yes, it, it used to vary. Now we have had a slew of very heavy rain summers I recently. Like, I think the last drought we had, I was still in my teens. Yeah. Yeah, we used to have droughts. We used to have <laughs> I forgot about that, honestly. Yeah, I remember when the ground would crack. Yeah, mm-hmm, I do. Still, though, rainfall... It's increasing, and the storms themselves, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they seem to be getting much more intense. Mm -hmm. We used to have, you know, thunderstorms where we just kind of had some rolling thunder and lightning. Now it's like downpour for 10 minutes, and then it's gone. It's very strange. Yeah, it's it's like a flash rain that you would see Mm -hmm. more in a place like Japan, because again, just super humid, and it's getting hotter, so more water is being released into the air. Yes. (laughs) So great. That all being said, though, when those storms come during the year still varies a lot. So that can be very disruptive at particularly two different points during the year around harvest, because as we've discussed in past episodes, that can waterlog your grapes, which means they have too much water in them. And that means a diluted wine at the end of the day. And on the other hand, if you have too much rain during what's called bud break or the process of when the flowering buds come out heavy storms can damage those knock the buds off and then you don't get those developing into grapes which can also damage your yields you don't want that either because that's quite literally lost money so there's a lot of challenges well in virginia and this is also compounded by our soil type yes Uh, Uh, which ironically enough is it's a challenge, but it's probably the least challenging part of Virginia wine, because at least there's grapes that kind of like clay. Yeah, exactly. So we are a very clay-heavy state here. If you've gone by any sort of roadside area where they've had to dig a significant portion of uh, a hill out or something, you'll notice it's very red, yep. and that's because we have very ferrous clay as well mm-hmm. in this area. There are a couple of places that can get a little sandy, it's much more rare. Our mountains were formed volcanically, so there's a lot of good minerality to the soil, but it is still primarily just clay. Yeah, and there is some variation, particularly the more you get into the mountains, you might get some more, not quite gravel, we're not Bordeaux, but a little bit more stone and and granite and whatnot in the soil there but yeah like michael said overall very clay heavy 
And there are a lot of grapes that do not like that because clay holds a lot of moisture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of grape vines really don't like that on their roots. So we're already humid. We already have a ton of rainfall. And then we also retain water very easily. Yeah. There are a lot of challenges in Virginia for trying to grow any type of wine. Yeah. And like I said it before, I'll say it again. The disease pressure is really intense here. Mm -hmm. There are some people that are trying as much as they can. Loving Cup has a model going already, but there are other wineries like Afton Mountain. Uh, I know their winemaker tries to do a lot more kind of like home remedy sprays. So like things based off of barks and tinctures and whatnot to avoid spraying as much chemical spray as they can feasibly do and still have a product to sell. But just know it's very difficult to do any sort of completely organic farming here. Now, that being said, uh, as far as our advantages, we actually have a very large commonality with right bank Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our weather, although it is very wet, still stays within a good growing range for most of the season. Uh, Our our winters overall are fairly mild, so you don't have to worry about your vines dying in the winter either. Exactly. And although we do have some frosts, they're not as intense as uh, as others in other parts of the world. It is a threat, but it's not as bad as it could be. And we normally don't have to deal with late frosts. They do sometimes happen. I have heard winemakers in the state that have said, yeah, one year I lost this block in my vineyard from a frost if you don't know why that's a problem late frosts can also kill your buds if it comes too late so that's you gotta keep your buds in check exactly you gotta keep those buds hold them accountable hold them accountable (laughs) yeah no it's so you know it's it's a decent wine region we just have a lot of stuff that's going on yeah and i do think and we'll get more into this later on but i think the ingenuity that you need to grow wine grapes at all in the state is an advantage in that the people that stick around really learn how to truly work well in Virginia's climate. Oh, yeah. And because of the fact that we do have those mountains and rolling hills, especially off towards the western part of Virginia, you have a lot of great slopes. They have amazing sun exposure. The areas are advantageous, provided that you're able to just overcome those few things. Exactly. I mean, you're talking about very vast slopes heading up towards those mountains. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeous. Yep. That being said, though, we have had quite the history with wine. (laughs) So despite the fact that we are relatively young in the wine industry, we are among some of the oldest plantings that were attempted inside of the U.S. area. Correct. Yeah. So why don't we get to talking about that? What's some of the history of this? Because we have a very troubled history when it comes to wine. (laughs) We do. So... The first that I was able to find of recorded viticulture in the state was actually from Thomas Jefferson. If you are not familiar with the history of the Founding Fathers, Jefferson was a very notorious wino. He loved wine. He loved Madeira in particular. He also really liked Spanish wines, if I remember correctly. But he loved Bordeaux as well. And he wanted to see if he could make good wine here in Virginia. Spoiler alert, he couldn't, but we think around the year 1807 is when he brought grapes to Monticello, which is his estate that you can still tour, fun fact. He did attempt his best to grow grapes. He attempted a bunch of different agricultural gardening stuff for food, actually. But 
due to, again, the disease pressure and rot, and also phylloxera. Listen to our phylloxera episodes if you don't know what that is. That did not bode well for his little vitis vinifera vines. So no luck for Jefferson. However, there is a grape that is actually native to Virginia called the Norton grape, and that began to be cultivated pretty regularly for actual wine production in the 1820s. Flash forward, we have the Monticello Wine Company. This was a co-op that was founded in 1873, and this gained a bunch of notoriety for its Norton-based wine called Claret at the 1873 Vienna Exposition. And that was basically a um, arts and culture exhibition out in Hungary, and the Monticello Wine Company brought their Norton-based Claret and won an award, and it got huge recognition across the global market because that was a global event, right? However, unfortunately, due to the very wise and thorough research that our leadership did into alcohol consumption in the early 20th century— Listen to our— Prohibition episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, prohibition happened, and the Monticello Wine Company shuttered pretty much at the beginning of it. They had no viable way to produce wine anymore. And I don't yeah, think. Grape juice from the types of grapes that, you know, you make wine from, not exactly, you're not going to make the same profit. Exactly. So they did not survive, unfortunately. It would have been nice if they had. But they were centered in Charlottesville, and that started the, I guess you could call it, tradition of Charlottesville being a big hub for wine in the state of Virginia. Now, after Prohibition, the wine industry didn't really pick back up until in 1976, we have the Zoning family, and they started Barbersville Vineyards. I'm also, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing Zoning could be Zonin. I'm not Italian. I'm sorry, I don't know. Uh, they're an Italian family. Um, but they started up Barbersville, which is still running to this day. You can go and try the wines. Very historic place. And they kind of helped to revive or restart our wine industry here in the Commonwealth. We are not a state. We're a Commonwealth. Fun fact. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, technically speaking. So if you say to someone, oh, you're from the state of Virginia, they might get mad at you. Some people get very up in arms about that. But anyway. When you're not from a commonwealth, though, nobody knows what you're talking about. Exactly. You're just like, oh, and, I'm actually from a commonwealth, and they, they look at you cross-eyed. And it doesn't know. really mean a whole lot. In practice, it doesn't affect most of us on a day-to-day basis, unless we work in government function, I guess. That all being said, late 70s into the 80s, Barbersville really helped lead the revival of the wine industry. And then over the past two decades in particular, because, you know, it takes a while and a lot of money to start a winery, right? So it wasn't up until the past, I would say, two decades or so that wineries really started to explode in terms of the numbers. So as I said at the start of this episode, we now have over 300 wineries in the state. And keep in mind, Virginia is not terribly big. So we have a lot of wineries in a very small area when you think about how much land we actually have. A lot of these are going to be more small-scale, family-owned wineries, relying a lot on direct sales. A lot of wines in Virginia are not distributed because distributing is expensive if you're that small. So you, unfortunately, 
particularly if you don't live in Virginia, probably going to have to come here or special order from places that will allow you to ship to other states to get our wine. I would actually recommend that you do that because the more that Virginia wine gets out there, the better it's going to be. Correct. And Um, yeah, (laughs) even within the state, I just want to say it's hard to get Virginia wine, (laughs) which honestly, if I if I can just talk to restaurant owners for a moment, get your stuff together. Like (laughs) we have good wine here. There's no reason not to feature it. Yeah. Having stag a bottle of, you know, stag's leap or if you want to go ahead and get your bottle of uh, of nickel, that's fine. You have high class clients coming in. You want to be able to present them with something that is recognizable in a corporate setting. But for the people who are just traveling in order to figure out what Virginia tastes like, maybe have a couple of bottles of something from like Raynard Florence. I don't know. Just yeah. something. If they'll ship it to you. Yeah, or, Barbers- or Barbersville. Yeah. Even Barbersville. Barbersville is the one that you can find in pretty much anywhere that sells Virginia wine. Yeah. I mean, I, I think they're still the biggest volume producer yeah, in the are. state. Yeah, 100%. But, you know, just, just something. Yeah. A bottle of from Veritas, maybe a bottle from Early Mountain. But even though we are not super big, we still bring in about $1.3 billion to the Commonwealth. And that is billion with a B, not million. So, you know, the industry is sizable, even with all the lack of attention that we get, that we rightfully deserve. Thank you for coming <laughs> to my TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> Gabe does not have opinions on Virginia wine. Well, speaking of opinions on Virginia wine, um, just to, this is something we'll also touch on at the end of the episode, but the current state of the industry is very hard to pin down in terms of a style. There isn't really yeah. a Bordeaux blend. There isn't really a Australian Shiraz. There isn't really a German Riesling equivalent in Virginia, I would not say. Having been to so many wineries and having tried so many of the products here, there's just so much variety and experimentation going on right now that it seems almost unfair to try and give you, the listener, like, a this is what you get out of Virginia. I can recommend producers, which I will do here towards the end of the episode. Some people have tried to give a style. Uh, what were you saying? It's like, People will say it's old world. It's in between old yeah. world and new world, which like it's really old not. world in California specifically. Yeah, which I would never use that description, no. honestly. Um, it's too varied. It's, it's too varied. I will say we do definitely lean towards old world production styles. I think our climate kind of forces us toward that more restrained, almost refined style because we can't just let our grapes hang on the vine like you can in California late into the season. Um, Our terroir is fighting us in some places, not going to lie. Yeah, so we do have to have a little bit more restraint in our wine, so maybe that could be a style, quote-unquote. But if you try some Petite Mansangs here, they're going to taste super fruity, super tropical, and like that's just how it is. So unfortunately, I can't give you like a, if you get a Virginia wine, here's what you can expect from it. But just know that if you get it from the right producer, if you're getting a reputable wine, it's still going to be good. And there's a lot of fun to be had here in the state. Yeah. And eventually there'll probably be some sort of consensus in different areas. People are experimenting. They're trying to overcome the problems that we have, the pressures that we face. Yeah. And once there's an established method for that, I think that's when we're going to finally start seeing some 
somebody be able to say, oh, no, this is this is definitely, you know, a Monticello Cab Franc. Yeah. Um, and if you want some resources, there is two that I wrote down. I don't know what else you had, um, but we do have Virginia Wine. That's just an organization, Virginia Wine. Which uh, does have an app now, which is horribly yeah. useful. And we are in no way paid by them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, we I wish we it, were. Yeah. I mean, I would love that. But we uh, we did discover that this app is actually really useful. It has everything listed out both mm-hmm. by the events and by the regions. Yep. You can literally just, if you're in an area that you suspect has wine, just pull up the app. It's really yep. good. They also have a blog that has a lot of really good information about different things about Virginia wine. And the website itself, if you don't like apps or want to use the app, it's virginiawine.org. We also have the Winemakers Research Exchange, and that is going to be a collection of winemakers in the state. It's a collective of sorts, if you want to call it that. And basically what it is, is they come together and they contribute academic research experiments that they do about their vineyards, their vinification process, whatever is involved with winemaking they're experimenting with. And they publish a lot of the work on their website. Uh, I apologize. I actually forgot to put down the website itself. But if you look up Virginia Winemakers Research Exchange on Google, it'll be probably the first thing that pops up. That's a really good resource. If you're curious about what winemaking entails, or particularly how winemaking in Virginia happens and what is being looked into, that's a really cool resource if you're into the more nerdy aspect of wine in Virginia. Was there anything you had to add on to the resource list? No, that's a good one because we've already canceled Vivino. So, oh right, yeah, we we'll need to talk we'll, to you guys we'll address... in a future episode on on Vivino. We had some fun a couple of weeks ago, and by fun I mean we were screaming at my computer screen. Um, <laughs> yeah, while trying, uh, we had a wine gifted to us with the cardinal on it. Yeah. So we were thinking this was a Virginia wine, but no. Yeah. We'll, we were we'll, deceived. We'll talk about that one. Maybe next episode we'll carve out some time for that but one. But they were all of them deceived. They were all of them deceived. Oh, oh gosh. gosh. Yeah. So anyway, back to good things. So the AVAs here in Virginia. We have quite a few of them, actually. Yeah. Now, we're not going to be getting into the nitty gritty of each one again because there isn't really a consistent style across the state. I personally would say that even applies within the AVAs. Every winery kind of has its own bent on winemaking, and that's going to be any region, right? But I think it's very pronounced here in Virginia, particularly because everybody's growing their own kind of unique plots of grapes that might vary from winery to winery within the same AVA. So there's just like, there's a lot. So yeah. The way I organized this was just north to south and then keep in mind continental towards the mountains and much more maritime and humid towards the shores. Yeah. is kind of the best way to think of it if you want to think about style in that capacity. So north to south, we start with Middleburg, and this is going to kind of be the area around D.C. Then we have the Shenandoah Valley. If you don't know what that is, that is the valley that we have at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains or Appalachian Mountains, depending on where you're from here in Virginia. We have Monticello, which encompasses Charlottesville and the surrounding area. And this one is probably going to be the most well-known AVA in Virginia. I will say that. That's where the Monticello Wine Trail is, which is a very famous wine trail in the state. We have the Northern Neck slash George Washington Birthplace AVA. Yes, that is the name. I don't know who named it, but it's quite the name. 
We have the Eastern Shore AVA, the North Fork of Roanoke AVA, Rocky Knob AVA, and the Virginia Peninsula AVA, which is kind of the very southeastern portion of the state. There is also one that I came across called the Appalachian High Country AVA, but I only saw that in one of the maps that I saw, so I don't know if that's official or not. If it is, I would say it's probably very new. Yeah, no, I wasn't able to find any other sort of official publication with it on it. Yeah. Now, there is, uh, so there's broader regions, and I apologize, I I neglected to write them down, mainly for uh, brevity's sake for the episode, but there is a a lot of wine in the Appalachian area, and there are regions that kind of surround these AVAs that are broken down. Virginia Wine, I believe, does have that breakdown on the app and the website, but just know that these are the specifically legally designated AVAs that are within these larger regions. It's really cool. Uh, On the app, you can actually go and you can search by each one of these ABAs in order to figure out if there are wineries in the area. We were actually talking earlier about my visit to a little place called Grey Haven, which is great, but they sell a lot of South African wines. And he's like, that's actually right around the corner from 23rd. 53rd. Or 53rd. That's correct. And I'm just like, yeah, no, definitely didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah. No, 53rd is like 10 minutes away. But yeah, no, 53rd is great. Would recommend going there. So Shout out to Chelsea, their winemaker, who I got to meet one time last time I was there. She was wonderful. <laughs> uh, so out of all these regions, like we said, you're probably going to have a slightly longer growing season once you are up into these more mountainous areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be having a lot more of that maritime influence as you as you get away. But there's not really a uniting style that's going to tell you exactly what you're going to get. It's yeah. just kind of trends of, of weather generally. There there will be cooler weather patterns in the mountain area, and then you get warmer and obviously wetter towards the ocean. So that will kind of reflect the styles and even some of the grapes. I know I think in the Appalachian area, particularly in the southeast part of the state, they're growing Riesling now. Oh, no kidding. Um, which I did not know you could grow Riesling successfully in Virginia. Um, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, but apparently they're they're doing, or at least experimenting with it. So I'm, I'm very curious, actually, to go out and try some now. So what are a lot of the grapes, though, that you think that are really gaining notoriety or are enjoyable in general? All right, so we're going to start with the one that everyone's going to yell at me if I don't mention, which is Viognier. Now, Viognier used to be considered, I think it was unofficially, the state grape. That is no longer the case. Most winemakers are starting to kind of divest from Viognier, not necessarily because it was making bad wines per se, and it kind of seems like everywhere I've talked about it with at least the tasting room staff, because uh, I don't get to, you know, just walk into the winemaker and ask them all the questions I want to at everywhere I go, unfortunately. But I've been told that a lot of it had to do with the disease pressure in particular. Also, people, I think, were getting a little burnt out on Viognier because when I started tasting, everybody did Viognier because, again, it was a steak grape, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody was growing it. Everybody had their own take on it. And I do think it does well, but apparently winemakers are starting to lean more towards some other white grapes, which we'll get into. I think that it was kind of like a panic thing, like, oh, we got something that's not awful. Yeah. It's our state grape now. Yeah. Well, and so that's another thing is Virginia wine used to have a horrible reputation. 
And a lot of people still think that that's the case, which like it was kind of earned because people were making like, you know, hooch. Yeah. <laughs> so um, our, our, ex- our main export for a while was just moonshine. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, there was a quality issue. There was a lot of um, pretty, you know, low quality fruit wines that were being produced. So. Yeah, I think it's like you said, we found Viognier and we were like, oh, we can grow this quick. Everybody grow it. And I will say, I still very much enjoy it. There's one in particular. So um, for each one of these grapes that I listed, I tried to think of the best examples that I have had in the state so far. So for Viognier, I'm going to say Chestnut Oak. They are a winery actually like five minutes down the road from Barbersville. So if you are visiting Barbersville, I would highly recommend checking out Chestnut Oak while you're there. I will say I couldn't find on their website uh, because I did look at their website just to double check when I was researching for this episode. I did not find a single varietal Viognier for their website right now. However, when I was there, we did have a Viognier. My father and I did have a Viognier that was delicious. And I do know that they had a blend with Viognier in it when I checked the website. So they're at least still growing it, which is good. So um, if you can find a single varietal Viognier from Chestnut Oak, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, Viognier, though, across the state, it tends to be obviously very floral. Uh, Viognier is an aromatic grape, if you don't know. And I know we've said it a million times that aromatic white wines are wines that are characteristically of the grape itself very expressive, particularly floral and fruity. So that is the Viognier in Virginia to a T, at least the good Viognier. There is some not so great Viognier that you can come across, but that's normally from a lower quality winery if you do come across it. I will say that there is a thing to note about our Viognier. So if you are familiar with Condro in the Rhone Valley, that is a Viognier appellation. They do not acidify their Viognier and Viognier by itself is naturally a pretty low acid grape. It can actually be a little bit oily. But the Viognier's here in Virginia are quite often acidified. Mm. So they're not going to be in the Condro style. They can range from bone dry to off dry. I've never had a fully sweet Viognier in the state. I don't think people, I mean, there's not a whole lot of fully sweet wines outside of the dessert category in the state to begin with. So that's not something you need to worry about if you don't like sweet wines. If you do like sweet wines, most of them are dry. Um, again, maybe to off dry, but you're not going to be getting your dessert level sweetness from that here in the mm-hmm. state, unfortunately, if that's what you like. For me, it works great because yeah, no, I like I'm dry wine. A, I'm not a <laughs> big fan of sweet wines. So. Yeah. So then we move on to the next white grape that I would say is a standout grape here, and that is going to be Petite Mansang. And I would recommend the Bluestone Vineyards Petite Mansang. Michael has tried this wine, yes. actually. We tried it at Early Mountain. And it was absolutely delicious. Yes. And very odd. It was odd, but... And I, I guess I would say that one is maybe a little atypical for Petite Mansang, because that one was a little bit creamy, for lack of a better way of putting creamy, it. Creamy. Like nutty. yogurty creamy. Yeah. yeah. It kind of had a little funk in a good way. Not like obnoxious, but kind of that tanginess that you can get in like Greek yogurt in particular. But also, it did have all the other qualities that we normally expect. So tropical fruit, high alcohol. This is a high alcohol grape, so expect, I would say, at minimum 14% from a lot of wineries. I don't think I've seen anything below 14% for Petite Mansang in the state so far. I'm sure it's out there, particularly in a cooler pocket of Virginia. But that being said, this one 
is often made in a style that is maybe off-dried and medium sweet. There are several dry petite mansangs in the state. The one from Bluestone Vineyard is a dry wine, but a lot of wineries here will also keep some residual sugar because it does pair well with how fruity this wine is. This wine is also very expressive. It's not an aromatic grape, so it's not that you know floral, really complex expressiveness, but tropical fruit and stone fruit in particular, you can expect a lot from Petit Nansang here. Yeah. And we, we actually had it after we had had a couple of the reds at Early Mountain Vineyard. It still had enough strength in order to overcome that. So this is this is a very expressive wine, very powerful. I, I found it to be delicious. Particularly that one from Bluestone Vineyard, just mm, mm. delicious. Oh, it was good. Well, we also were in a good mood, though, because... Because we're at Early Mountain. Yeah, and Tim Ward <laughs> is amazing as a chef. So, mm-hmm. you know, anything that happens there is you're going to have a good time. Yeah, for but, sure. Uh, unless there's anything else, we also get to move on to the Cab Franc. Yes. Do you want to handle the recommendation for this one? Because I, I think this wine changed your life. Oh, by far. <laughs> uh, it totally did. So Cabernet Franc, if you didn't know, we've mentioned it a couple of times, is actually one of the kind of ancestors of Cabernet Sauvignon, Mm -hmm. both it and Sauvignon Blanc. Yes. That being said, it is not as uh, ostentatious or aggressive as Cabernet uh, Sauvignon. True. Um, It's not going to have that same kind of grittiness to it. It's a bit more refined. It's a bit more stoic, you know. Potentially. Potentially. But it can also get pretty, pretty bold at times. Not quite to the extent of Cabernet Sauvignon. No. But it also um, doesn't have the tannin structure. This, this is a medium, maybe upper end of medium at most, like super ripe, but typically you're going to be low medium to medium tannins on Cab Franc. Yeah. And we're talking about a lot of red and black fruits together. Well, normally it's red fruit. Normally it, it's it, red fruit. When it's you really get, ripe, it, you it can, can get some, but yeah. not a lot. More like that black raspberry, black cherry. Yeah, but not, not we're not, not getting quite. into plum or anything. Correct. Like yeah, that. or like blackberry. Yeah, we're we're talking mostly uh, about cherry, tart cherry in particular. Here we have quite a few though that have stood out. This might be my favorite wine that we have in Virginia. This, if if we want to have a state grape, I think at least at the moment this would be the one that is coming along the quickest. Mm-hmm. So when I first started tasting wine, I was convinced that I hated Cab Franc because it can be very green if it's yes. not ripe. We're talking green peppers. We're talking chewing a branch yes, type of green. like bad green, very yeah. bad green. And it can also be quite gritty on the tannin structure when it's not fully ripe. And when I first started wine tasting in Virginia, a lot of wineries were making that style. It was yeah. just it was underripe. And it was not good, and I hated it. And, and normally, to this day, I still yeah. honestly kind of avoid Cap Franc. But in particularly the past, I would say two years, in particular, but two to three years, the Cap Franc has really started to come around, at least at the better wineries, and is really mm-hmm. starting to impress me a lot. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, one that has impressed both of us to. This is the wine that changed Michael's life. Yeah, there's no way to overstate how much I love this wine, but Early Mountain's Quaker Run is the most amazing Cab Franc that I've ever had in my life. Yeah. I don't know what kind of voodoo witchcraft they did to get that wine to taste that way, but 
Someone got sacrificed, I'm convinced, yeah. on a full moon. Like, <laughs> that wine has no business being that good. The only true biodynamics. Yeah. <laughs> this will cost you if you do... Yeah. Um, this is pricey. This, I think it was... 40 something a bottle it might have been close to 50 um mm-hmm. so you are i mean obviously that's not the most expensive bottle in the world but it's not i it's wouldn't not call cheap. that i wouldn't call that like an affordable bottle necessarily yeah especially if you're just getting cheap, into wine cheap might be a better way to say it you know if you're just getting into wine don't don't get this because you'll this. ruin it you'll ruin you, it for the rest of your life you'll be like nothing will touch this one <laughs> stay under 20 for a little bit you have time <laughs> no this, i mean michael's so right like we both adored this wine when we tried it i actually still have one because they said it, it has aging potential so i actually still have that bottle that i got Oof. sitting in there i think i might open it for christmas this year and, mm-hmm. and see how it does um but no this is a beautiful wine this is that very full like when i think you know, people say old world like this is an old world wine to me because it's very tertiary. So it has a lot of that oak. It has a lot of earth, a lot it, of minerality, a lot of minerality. It yeah. has fruit still, but it's much more about all that complexity and earthiness and deliciousness that oh, I love. Yeah. No, it was like walking into a forest and just flipping over a log and smelling that in a nearby river mm-hmm. while you're eating a bunch of delicious red fruits. Yes. It was amazing. Well, unless you had anything else for Cab Franc. Uh, no, go to Early Mountain, but not for your first wine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if, if you want to enjoy any other wine. But no, uh, so moving on to what is, I would say, probably my favorite grape overall in the wine world petite verdot this is going to be a big bold red kind of wine this is one of the noble varieties of bordeaux fun fact but a lot of producers don't utilize it because a lot of them think it's too strong for their wine i disagree however i think it's beautiful and wonderful so this is going to be your dark fruits this is going to be a high tannin wine typically pretty inky in color as well This one has a very strong herbal edge to it, particularly sage. It it always hits sage Mm -hmm. for me. Um, Also, like a little bit of rosemary and thyme, but primarily that almost like sweet earthiness that sage has. I don't really know how else to describe it. But that is going to be a pretty big commonality between Petit Verdot's. I will say, even though it's my favorite grape, I've gotten much more picky about it because I've had so many good Petit Verdots in the state now that when I have one that doesn't quite measure up, I'm a little like, "Mm, mm, come on. Petit Verdot at its best is all of those things that you mentioned, but at its worst, it can end up tasting like just super ripe fruits and an unbalanced type of herbal flavor that just it it ends up being a little sheepy it it can also be green and it can be very harsh one thing that a lot of people will say about petit verdot and a reason it's not beloved by a lot of people is a lot of people drink it too young Mm -hmm. or it wasn't made in a way to be approachable at a young age might be one way to put it petit verdot again that high tannin it it does have some alcohol on it. This is a wine that typically you want to lay down for a while if it's within a year or two of its vintage date mm-hmm. because it can be very harsh. Yeah. You I, need to have those tannins soften a bit. You mm-hmm. need it to integrate with the wine a little bit. Yeah. Otherwise, it's splitting your palate. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a powerful wine. However, uh, I will say, and we've actually mentioned this before on the show, a local favorite of ours, Raynard Florence, does Petit Verdot. 
and always thinking of you guys you guys are wonderful we love you um i want to get back out there soon and see what's happened since harvest but anyway so Raynard florence the petit verdot that they produce i would say is probably the most approachable at a young age that i've had in the state and it is a solid petit verdot like i really have never had an issue with their petit verdot i've tried several vintages at this point and i've always really liked it so I, I think theirs would be the one that I would recommend for just the everyday drinker. Even if you are not the everyday drinker and you are the person that wants that Quaker run that we just talked about, Cap Franc, I would still recommend this wine because I think it's a very solid example of kind of like the best of both worlds. Because you mm -hmm. could lay that bottle down for two, oh, two three certainly. more years, but it's definitely ready to drink now, I would say, at least the ones that I've had. I don't know about this most recent vintage because I haven't tried it, but if reputation and tradition serves correctly it should be wonderful right now oh yeah no they they've been doing a great job and the guy is brilliant I yeah mean, he literally does everything from the architecture to the yeah. winemaking yeah. you know to even the uh taking care of the vineyards themselves yes he's his name's ro he's also uh commonly just in the tasting room hanging out or in the middle of doing something in the tasting room or whatever so you might get a chance to talk to him if you're in uh, tell him that we sent you <laughs> if, if you did or if you do get the chance to talk to him. Uh, so anyway, um, unless you had anything else on Petit Verdot, oh, um, no, this one is a bit of an unsung hero, I would say, in Virginia, and that is Tanat. Now, Tanat is another very powerful red. So this is going to be high tannin, like just as high, if not even higher than Petit Verdot. Deep, deep, deep inky color. Think kind of like Malbec inky kind of color. This is going to be dark fruits as well. And this one is going to differ from Petit Verdot in that this one's going to be more on the smoky, spicy mm -hmm. spectrum than the herbal spectrum. Now, Tanat is not, again, as I said, as common as these other grapes that I just mentioned, but it is growing in popularity. And I do know that there's a lot of interest from winemakers in particular surrounding Tanat and how viable it is in our climate and i would say for my recommendation stinson has an incredible tonight or at least they did i don't know if they're doing it again but it was the 2020 i want to say tonight that they had that wine was incredible like i i'm pretty sure it won a governor's gold or silver for the category that was just an incredible the best wine. you've ever had in the state, well, I, I, actually, for for Tanat overall, yeah. Um, cause, well, wow. granted, I haven't had a lot of Tanat from other places. Tanat overstate your experience. <sighs> You're banned. <laughs> I'm replacing you with a robot that I'm just going to program an AI to sample your voice and say whatever I want you to. Oh, oh God, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, that would actually be very boring. Anyway, uh, so yeah, no, I, this is the best to not that I've had, but granted, again, hear me out, my experience outside of, well, even in Virginia, like I said, there's not a ton, so my experience is limited, but that was an incredible to not, if they are still doing it or if they're doing multiple vintages of it, if you're at Stinson, please pick up a bottle, that was a great wine. So then we move on to uh, Norton, which is a native grape to Virginia, and that's why I included it on the list. It's not super prominent in the state at least anymore i think it used to be more prominent again because of that heritage aspect of it the species name if you are curious is vitis estivalis 
and that is an indigenous species to America and Virginia in particular. Like I said, though, this is not super popular anymore, or at least I have not encountered it recently. And this is going to be your red fruit, and it's going to be kind of peppery. This is one because it is, uh, you know, this non-vinifera variety. People will use the term foxy to describe it, which kind of means um, wild and almost gamey in a way, a little uh, harsh on the nose and on the palate. Norton can definitely have that, but overall, in the ones that I've had, this is actually the state grape of Missouri, fun fact, and I have had some in Missouri that was pretty good. So if you want to have Virginia Norton, though, Horton Vineyards, which is another actually pretty historically significant winery here in the state. You can get their stuff at Total Wine. You can. Um, and also Wegmans, I believe. They're, they're another one that you can find if they carry Virginia wine. The shop you're at, they probably have Horton. Their Norton is solid, and their tasting is actually quite interesting. You can choose, I think, like 10 wines to sample because they make everything from white wines to dessert wines to fruit wines. So that kind of does it with the grapes that are unique in Virginia, I would say, or have a unique expression in Virginia. Yeah, they stand out more than others. We also do have Chardonnay, Sauvignon mm-hmm. Blanc, that yes. sort of thing. But I Merlot. Really... Merlot is another really big red yeah. in the state. We shouldn't do Merlot, though. Uh, I'm fine with Merlot. It's Cabernet Sauvignon that, for me personally, I'm like, please stop. I mean, that's that's a hard stop, but that's also to do just with our soil type. It's like we're, yeah. we're completely designed not to do this. Yeah. Merlot, I, there's, you know, varying levels of quality for Merlot. I, I just don't... I like it in blends, I think, here more than anything. Yeah, using it in order to to kind of just give a little bit more body mm-hmm. to other wines, I think is an appropriate use of it. But as far as it being a standalone, I haven't had that many out. I think, I think Raynard Florence is the last one that had even a significant portion of Merlot that I, I mm-hmm. enjoyed. Yeah. That being said, Oh, a point I want to make on Chardonnay actually, before I say my next thing, most wineries will do oaked and unoaked styles of Chardonnay. So if you're worried about that, like if you really like one and not the other and you're like, well, I don't know, I would say at least try out a winery because uh, like I said, normally it seems that they'll have both if they are doing Chardonnay. And I've had very good examples of both here in the state. It just kind of depends on the winemaker and their expertise, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we are starting to see some hybrids pop up more. We've always kind of had Vidal Blanc here in the state, which Vidal Blanc is much more common up in the Great Lakes, uh, Canada. It's used a lot for ice wine production, and we use it for dessert wines here a lot as well. Some people do make, you know, standard white dry wines out of Vidal Blanc. I will say I haven't been wowed by, I don't think, any of them. I'm much more into the dessert wines that they do make, but it's an interesting grape to try. We also have Chamberson, which is a very popular hybrid in the state now, or well, at least is becoming a much more popular hybrid in the state that I've noticed. People will say Chamberson is probably one of the most viable replacements for Vitis vinifera. I will say I personally haven't been wowed by any Chamberson I've ever had personally. Mm. Not necessarily to knock anyone's wine or winemaking. I, I think it's just a little too bright and fruity for my taste for a red. The grape itself just it, it can read as a little adolescent for lack of a better way of putting it. Like it kind of feels like fruit juice to me sometimes mm. when I drink it. 
not to say that the wines I've had have been bad, but just for my own personal palate, I prefer something earthier, darker, heavier. But if what I just described sounds good, Chamberson would be a great thing for you to try. But there's also other hybrids that are being grown. Um, I know we have Traminet and some others that are much smaller plantings being experimented with. And we and, also have uh, some orange wines that are being produced. Yeah, correct. Uh, Stinson, which we reviewed this on the podcast a while back, has the Arcats Telly Wildcat. So that all being said, unless you had anything else for grapes, uh, why don't we move on to wineries? Yeah, let's let's talk about some wineries here. Now, Gabe, like I said, Gabe has had a lot more experience with the wineries themselves, but we both have been to quite a few of them at this point. And really, the wineries are probably the most exciting thing about Virginia wine in general. For yeah, me. we have so many different ones with such unique expressions, all of them feeling fairly rustic in the way that they present themselves. So going and visiting any of these, it's typically going to be fairly cozy. You're going to see a lot of that kind of rustic charm. A lot of them are in fairly rural areas. Oh, yeah. Also, there is very much a, a culture of the family-owned winery here in the state. There are some bigger ones. Um, so Barbersville, I think, would kind of be the biggest winery in the state in terms of you know its production size mm -hmm. and whatnot. But we also primarily, I would say, are much more focused, or at least are made up of smaller wineries. Yeah, our industry is less so about export than it is about people visiting and mm -hmm. uh, staying in an area like Charlottesville and going and enjoying different wineries at different times of the day. Yeah. So we do have Barbersville. That is mm -hmm. going to be our largest. We also have Horton. Mm -hmm. And those are probably also going to be your most historic yeah wineries how would you describe your experience there horton is a pretty fun place it's pretty laid back overall it's a cool property like i said the tasting can be a little intimidating because it's uh, at least as of when i was there it was 10 wine tastings eight or ten i'm pretty sure it was 10 and you just have this huge list to choose from and <laughs> you pick off what you want other than that we also have early mountain which is mm -hmm. the one that gabe and i constantly go on about Early Mountain is gorgeous. It's upscale, surrounded by fields of grapes. The decor is amazing. Still kind of uh, rustic, but in a much more... It's like California estate rustic. Yeah, it's it's we have money rustic. Yeah. It was so... Early Mountain was actually founded by... I believe it was one of the founders of AOL or one of the like angel investors oh, or something really? like that. That's how the winery started. So that's why it's as big as it is and as fancy as it is. Wow. Like Michael said, I mean, it's just a stunning winery, both yeah. inside and outside. They have outdoor seating if you like a little patio space. You're surrounded by the vineyards. It's a beautiful location. And Tim Moore is a Michelin star chef who used mm -hmm. to work at the... Uh, little Inn of Washington. Yeah. And his food is so good. It is amazing. Yeah. He incorporates so many different things that I would never even associate with the palates that he is able yeah. to create. And he likes uh, local. Yes. Too, which is very important for me. So, so then, next up. Yes. So this one is going to be up in our northern neck part of the state, close to D.C. It's near Lovettsville, Percival area, if you're familiar with that part of the state. This is going to be Barreau, and that is spelled B-R-E-A-U-X. The guy who started this winery, I believe, is from Louisiana, so that kind of explains the French name. And also, when you go to the winery, and why I put this winery on here, is this is another... It's funny because we were just talking about 
you know, the small scale family winery. We've been talking about the bigger wineries here. This is another big winery, um, huge, like two story building on a beautiful plot of land. That one is also set right in the middle of their vineyards that they have, or at least some of the vineyards. I think they have a few other holdings, but the building itself is beautiful. It's covered in wrought iron to reflect the Louisiana heritage. And this was on the first wine trip that I took out with dad. And I haven't tasted the wines in a while, but I do remember the wines being very good when I went. So I have not had a chance to go here. So now I'm going to have to plan that. Yeah, we should. uh, We should take a little three hour drive. (laughs) Yeah, just the smallest. (laughs) Just a small little three hour drive. Um, No, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful winery. I would definitely recommend going if you are in that part of the state. Then we also have Linden, which is also in the northern part of Virginia. This is, well, A, it's a beautiful winery, but the reason I put it on is, honestly, I think this is probably the best wine, at least the red wines, that I've had in the entire state. These wines are amazing. They're beautiful. The winemaker, I do not remember his name, but he is very rigorous. He's very myopic about his plantings and where they're planted and the aspect. I uh, I saw an interview with him a while back, and he's just a very interesting guy. And he makes incredible wines. The wines are expensive. This is definitely a pricier winery to visit, but I would say the wines are worth it and would give it a recommend. This is another one that I'm sorry, Michael, you have not been to. Yep. But uh, just rubbing it in my face this whole uh, episode. Listen, I'm trying to give the people something good, you know? You know, you gotta. But uh, so now that we're done with our big wineries, we have Rainer Florence. I feel at this point, we don't really have to really say anything about them. They're... What can we say that we aren't repeating? Exactly. You know? uh, just go visit them. They're also quite close to Barbersville. If you want to talk about family owned, that's that's it. That's it. So and we they have a, a gorgeous little puppy. Yeah. Tilray. Yeah. yeah. Actually, and two there's now, two. Right? Yeah. yeah. I Oh, I can't remember the other one's name. She's adorable, though. And they're both very chill, but also friendly. So you can, you know. Pet the dog while you sip your wine. Two little corgis. Yes. We also have Gabrielli. I'm going to say Rose. I want to give a disclaimer. Every time I hear someone pronounce this man's name, they pronounce it differently. <laughs> Gabrielli stays the same, but I've heard Rose. I have heard Rosa. I've heard Rusa. And it's, it's R-A-U-S-S-E. So if anyone knows how to actually pronounce this name, please DM us with a voice note and tell me. So I can finally know and stop feeling so disrespectful because Gabrielli also is actually very important to the wine history here in Virginia. Actually, I think he worked with Barbersville to help establish some of their vineyards, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, But anyway, so he has his own place and I believe his son is doing some winemaking now as well. Their location's really cool. It's this building that was going to be a house and they decided to turn it into the winery and it has this like huge glass front and side on it with these big timbers and it's just it's a really cool location and oh, it's so it's much fun and they have a ton of outdoor seating and you can they even have some out in like uh they're surrounded by woods they're not surrounded by vineyards their vineyards are actually on the other side of the hill where the woods are and you can go out into the woods and that's where a lot of their seating is so it's kind of like you can feel kind of isolated and cozy without actually being isolated and cozy And the thing I really like about their wines right now in particular is they're doing a lot of low intervention wines. So uh, no sulfites added, indigenous yeast, 
skin contact on some of their white wines so they're kind of going that more like experimental natural wine route a little bit which is so hard in this state yeah uh, they're not organic as, as i said um but that's a really cool place and the staff has always been super friendly when i've been as well so i would highly recommend going there and the last on my recommendation list for standout wineries is loving cup again you can read my review of loving cup on the instagram but as I said, this is the only certified organic winery in the state. They also only work with hybrids, so there's no Vitis vinifera vines there. And most of the wines are blends across the hybrids that they have. Now, these wines, if you're not used to wine or if you're not very adventurous in wine, these wines might kind of take you off guard because they are unusual, I will say that, for you know, the standard Vitis vinifera drinking person, but they are not less in quality at all, in my opinion. I was actually very impressed. Uh, full disclosure, as you might have picked up by how I talked about Chamberson, I'm not particularly convinced on hybrids, or I wasn't at least, until I went to Loving Cup. And while the wines are, you know, they're different than what I'm used to, they are still just as quality and they're delicious. And they're fun because they are a little bit different than the standard Vitis vinifera wine. So I would say they definitely sold me on the concept of hybrids to begin with. And again, they're organic, super small scale production, off the beaten path. Follow the signs, you will get there, <laughs> no matter how lost you think you are. Um, but they're a really cool winery, and I am very glad that I finally was able to go out and talk to the... Um, winemaker and owner for like five minutes but he was super friendly and yeah so definitely was, go to loving cup was there any outstanding uh hybrid wine that stood out to you so they actually had a pet nat that you would have really liked i don't remember what the hybrids in it were i think it was a blend i'm pretty sure it was a blend of their white grapes but it was delicious and i, I would honestly say it, it was better than some traditional Vitis vinifera sparkling wines that I've had oh, wow. is because it, it would it was still zippy. It still had some fruit character, and because it was a pet nat, it was a little yeasty from that uh, yeast that's in the bottle. That's part of what makes pet nat pet nat, and it was you know persistently fizzy like any other good sparkling wine. And it was just a it was a little different on the flavor profile. It was a little bit more um, not candied, but maybe the fruit tasted a little sweeter, I guess, than maybe hmm. your standard. I mean, it would make sense. Sparkling wine, because that's kind of a hybrid thing. They they tend to be very fruit forward, like Chamberson. But that all being said, that I think that was one that, like, I think most standard wine drinkers would really gravitate towards. Also, just the Loving Cup Red, which is what they call their standard red wine, was very good as well. I definitely need to try these things. Yes. So, considering that we have these places, they're they're doing a lot of stuff. All of them sound so completely different. So as far as the identity and the future of wine, we know that it presents uh, a lovely place to go and visit, and we are seeing through the Governor's Cup a lot of prestige starting to be generated surrounding the topic of wine inside of Virginia. Yeah. Where do you kind of see that going? What do you think is, is the route that's going to take? Well, I've noticed that even Early Mountain is now doing some like low to no sulfites, low intervention style winemaking. They've been using indigenous yeast for some of their wines, at least for a couple of years now. Um, as I mentioned, Gabriele Rosa is doing that now. 
I've noticed that trend. Like there's a kind of like sustainability, kind of a more localized terroir driven expression that seems to be rising up with a lot of winemakers. That's wonderful. I think the research exchange is helping with that a lot and like really cementing like, oh, here's what you can do in your vineyards to make your wine the best that it can be. So that's really good. As you said, I do think the quality is very much increasing here in Virginia. Not sure exactly where we're going in terms of like, what the grape makeup is going to look like. I do think Cap Franc is here to stay. I think Petit Verdot is also here to stay, at least just from the sales. I, I know it, it's a popular grape here because it's very hard to get single varietal Petit Verdot literally anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Except for Virginia. And it also tastes good. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I think the future is going to be just um, a continuation of the upping of the quality of wine. And I think also... A lot of the hospitality aspect, I think, is going to become more prevalent because a lot of wineries are focusing a lot now on like bringing in local musicians and pairing up with food trucks if they don't have, you know, uh, food available and, and like stuff like that to just kind of like have a bit more of a community aspect. And I know Virginia wine, I think what really sold me on to begin with is it's very communal. If you go to a winery, and you ask what's good, they'll give you five other wineries to go to that they like. And I really like that. It doesn't feel, I mean, it's competitive, obviously, because it's business, but it's very collaborative as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's wonderful. I, I think the collaboration is definitely going to lead us to good places in terms of, again, the quality and the hospitality side of things. Well, and apparently we are starting to, while not having a lot of export here in the U.S., apparently... Britain really yes. likes mm -hmm. our stuff. Yes. It's not a crazy amount, but apparently no. there they, is they a do. following. They have a taste for our wines. Uh, the theory I heard is because they also like French wine a lot. And if you're going to have to compare Virginia, France, I guess, is maybe the closest. But I, I still more don't... austere and a little yeah. less wet. Yeah, I, I, I don't really like comparing us to anyone because I just think I don't really I can't think of a place. It's like comparing yeah, California to Washington. Like, I don't know. It, it's yeah. It, each place is unique, right? It's exactly. its own expression. And so um, I do think also going forward, hopefully we see a little bit more of prominent styles from Virginia come out. But I do think the experimentation and the variety of what you can get in Virginia is one of the selling points. Mm. It might be a little frustrating for you, the listener, if you're not from Virginia to navigate, because it's like, well, I don't know what's good and what's not. I hear you. I get that. That's totally fair. But I do think, on the other hand, it makes for a lot of very interesting wines in the state to have fun with. Because wine should be fun at the end of the day, in yeah, my opinion. So. should be a fun experience. Exactly. Well, speaking of fun experiences. Yeah, we do have actually a little tasting going on today. Yes. Uh, apparently, this was one of the, the first places that... This was the first. The first place that Gabe ended up going to. So if yes. you would, please tell us what we're drinking today. So this is going to be from a winery called Paramund, and I would add them to my recommended wineries list. I've been there twice now, and each time the wines were very good, and the tasting staff was A+. We are drinking their Cabernet Franc. This is going to be the 2018 Cabernet Franc. And this is, I would say, a very representative wine. If we are going to have a, you know, quote unquote style of Virginia wine, I would say particularly for Cab Francs in the state, this is, I would say, even a little bit better because, again, I kind of got put off for a while by how green a lot of Cab Francs in the state were, at least at the time. 
And uh, this one, it is green, still a little bit. I mean, that's just the grape is going to have pyrazines in it. It's mm. just the nature of Cap Franc. But obviously, vineyard management and winemaking can change how expressive <laughs> those pyrazines are. So I was a little nervous, I'm not going to lie, because, you know, I, I didn't remember what their Cap Franc was like when I went originally. Um, but I am pleasantly surprised, very pleasantly surprised by this wine. Yeah, uh, we were talking about this a little earlier while it was opening up, but this wine seems to have even a, a little bit of like a bread expression to it, mm -hmm. which adds to that kind of tart cherry, yeah. uh, red cherry flavor. I think it, it very slight, it very well. Yeah, very slight. It's not obnoxious bread. It's not like Rhone Valley bread. No, 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 no. It's it's just a touch, and yeah. it kind of gives a I want to say context to the bright acidity yeah. of this wine, and it, it adds a little bit of complexity as well because there there is a little bit of that barnyardy mm -hmm. kind of animalistic thing going on, which I actually think goes well for Cab Franc in particular because it does have that or it can have that kind of sharp green note to it, and that kind of helps. Tone give context hey, tone it down also give a little bit more roundness and in, into the wild character that cab franc can kind of have i wouldn't say this is a wild wine or a foxy wine or anything like that this could go up against pretty much any cab franc i've had from the loire valley that is going to be a little bit of that more sharp toned from the loire valley cab franc but mm -hmm. this uh it's riper it's still much very much like red berries though yeah. um like red currants in particular raspberries particularly uh, wild strawberries, Yeah, it, I would say. Very bright. But the acidity as well as it's kind of... Uh, not, I wouldn't describe it as gritty, it, um, mm -mm. but it definitely has there, a much more... It's velvety. It's velvety. There's it, a little bit of a grip, but it's it's smooth. Yeah, it's, it's an aggressive flavor, though. This mm -hmm. isn't... When we're describing this, you might be tempted to think that this is going to be like a Pinot Noir. This is like a Pinot Noir on Monster Energy drinks. Yeah, I yeah. would... um. Cranberry. cranberry there's definitely yeah. cranberry in here that very tart which i personally really like um oh. I, I love tart in my Same. wine and there's a little bit of earthiness so, so again there's that bread but a little oh. bit of like wet leaves kind of like walking through a damp forest smell mm. you know you know what i really want right now hmm. rice stuffed grape leaves Ooh, some dullness yeah 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 because i think that this would pair very well with things that are vinegar heavy I agree. Yeah. I think this would Even also just some vinegar chips. Mm -hmm. oh, we should have picked some up at Wegmans. We, we were there. Done that. We were there. <laughs> we didn't know it was going to be perfect. Um, what about meat dishes? Cause I I'm in my mind, I'm like, this would go well with meat, but I'm having trouble placing cause it's not quite heavy enough for lamb. No. And it, it won't stand up to beef. I don't think mm -mm. maybe pulled pork, pulled pork. Oh yeah. Actually I think pulled as long as it's not too sweet. Yeah. I think uh, certain styles of duck could go well with this because mm. this will kind of cut through the oiliness yeah. of the duck really well. Oh, yeah. I was going to say just like bacon. Actually, uh, turkey bacon, I think, would go well with this. Turkey bacon doesn't go well with anything, Gabe. You shut your mouth. How, how dare turkey you? Turkey bacon is the worst. I am about to beat Michael up. I'm about to schoolyard uh -huh. bully you into yeah, sure. a locker. Yeah, try it. I'm about to body you try right it. now. How dare you besmirch the name of the sacred turkey bacon? You don't like turkey bacon? I do not like turkey bacon. I don't know if we can be friends anymore. Well, okay, I'm going to say turkey bacon because I have taste, apparently. <sighs> See, I was fed turkey bacon for the longest time 
while being raised inside of a of a synagogue. So I thought that I hated bacon. I didn't <laughs> like the flavor. See, I like turkey bacon more than regular bacon. That is so weird. How? What bacon have you been eating? Who I'm, hurt I've, you? I've had I've had like butcher quality bacon. Bacon is just for one thing, turkey bacon isn't quite as salty. There's just like more substance to it. Like I don't know how to put because it. Because it's meat amalgam. Yeah. It's not even a muscle. It's great. You it's literally just 3D printed, but not even to the quality that we have today. And it's bacon. And it's great. I love it. God. Like it's literally just like the fruit roll-up equivalent of a meat patty. Okay, well, Michael, back to the wine. <laughs> Sorry. I no, I then they just go ahead and color it so that it's Back to the wine. This is bacon made by the Runtz Company. This is uh, this is why we can't have nice things. I've never. We do have a nice thing, tape. Michael. We do. We're drinking it. We're drinking it. We're friends. We're drinking it. <laughs> That's called de-escalation. This is this is how the podcast ends. Actually, <laughs> this is the last episode. I'm sorry, guys. We just couldn't. We couldn't sort out our differences on turkey bacon. Yeah, no, that's that's crazy. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and give you turkey bacon as a possible pairing for this a a salad with a decent vinaigrette yeah and, and a the lot red, of olives a lot of olives maybe um, some some uh dried fruit in there as well i could see this being paired with a heartier hummus oh yeah 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 actually yeah that would be really lovely actually obviously cheese just oh, yeah. in general no, i want i want this with blue cheese really yeah bad. this would this oh, oh man we want to talk about meat this would go great with a lot of cured meats I was thinking it would go pretty well with like prosciutto. I mm-hmm. could see it going well with Iberico chorizo. This would go mm-hmm. very good with. Mm-hmm. All in all, though, delightful. Yeah, would recommend. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna go ahead and give this a a Robert Parker <laughs> ninety five. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a solid for the price. I'm gonna give it a sixteen out of twenty. Okay. Oh, this was a nineteen ninety nine, I believe. Mm-hmm. You said 16 out of 20. Mm-hmm. I think I would give this hmm. for the price as well. Yeah. Um, see, I'm wanting, I want to go like 17 or 18. I think I'll, I think I'll say 17 and a half, 17.5, 17.5. I'll cop out. I already put, gave us a 20 point scale <laughs> and you just had to go ahead and make a half measure. <laughs> the gremlin that lives inside my head must be obnoxious. <laughs> Well, I'm just not sure if that has enough specificity for my <laughs> level of refinement. I'm literally making it more specific, Michael. No, that's what I'm saying. I was oh, mocking oh, you. Oh, this oh. was a pass. Thank you. <sighs> All right, well. This Harmonize is the- with me in, in a gaspness. <sighs> so this has been the last episode of Laid Back Lush, because <laughs> we're not, we're not going to be able to come back from this, I'm sure. Not from the bacon comment. <sighs> can't believe you i just hope somebody remixes our harmonizing size <laughs> <laughs> someone make a hyper pop remix please hyper pop yeah i want it to be on the next gex album <laughs> <laughs> pouring turkey bacon in a wind. if if we somehow get sampled by 100 gex oh we're blowing up i will die happy i that's all i need in life it's just to be recognized by your someone send this to dylan brady please oh my god 
<laughs> anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this wild adventure while we go through and talk about one of our, uh, well, our most experienced wine regions simply yeah. because of our proximity to it. Yep. We're smack dab in the middle. Smack dab in the middle. And we do hope that you get the chance to visit some of our amazing wineries. We're probably going to be featuring a couple of more here and there. Uh, as far as our next episode, um, oh gosh, we haven't thought about it yet. But no. you know what? We just did uh, Virginia wineries. Why not do Virginia breweries? It's starting to get a little bit. Oh, yeah, we could do that. We could do that. We'll discuss it, though. We'll talk amongst ourselves. That, that would be a good... Uh foil too because as my wine experience is to michael michael's beer experience is to me oh i've been to so many breweries in in, yeah uh in virginia virginia has an amazing brewery scene um you can always catch us there playing cornhole and uh wearing our horn roomed glasses they they might catch you doing that yeah no they they won't be catching i i will be sipping the goza talking the bartender's ear off to see if i can get their process down that's that's fair actually yeah Yeah, that's that's what's going on meanwhile i'll be blending in with all the polos yeah yeah (laughs) well i don't know i don't really stick out at at the breweries because there's also a lot of alt people that go to the breweries here so it's a very eclectic group of people and there are so many different styles like i do stick out the wineries i will say that yeah (laughs) because the wineries all have that kind of same rustic feel just with varying levels of industriousness yeah whereas the breweries they all have completely different identities yeah um but we'll get more into that in our next episode we Indeed. do hope that you have enjoyed it if you have not already done so please do follow us at laidback lush on instagram and twitter Give us all of your questions, comments, concerns, and various hot takes, which we will agree or disagree with in some form or fashion. Yes. Uh, thank you, guys, as ever. We couldn't do this without you, so that's that's very nice of you to listen to our podcast. Thank you so much. In any case, I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>